Hey everyone, good evening. Welcome to another week of Bible Study Fellowships. Great to have you here with us. Tonight we're going to be looking at Matthew 22, uh, the rest of Matthew 22, and all of Matthew 23. Let me pray for us and we'll go ahead and get started. Lots of great stuff for uh, us tonight in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, uh, it is with humble hearts that we come before you. Uh, Lord, we really do need to hear your voice. Uh, There are so many other voices that we would be tempted to listen to, that we want to listen to, voices that will more than likely lead us astray. And so, Father, as you uphold in this text tonight, uh, Jesus, as your authoritative representative on earth, I pray that you would help us to learn that, and more, that we would be able to hear Jesus' voice so that we can listen and follow the directions and instructions that he provides to your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm wondering if you've ever been faced with making a decision. Perhaps it's uh, been for something that's a a minor decision that you have to make, like where am I going to go today for lunch? Or maybe it's a slightly larger decision and you're trying to decide between, you know, two items to buy for your house. Maybe like you need to buy a new washing machine or a refrigerator or a mixer or some device. And you're wondering, what one should I get? Should I get Model A? Should I get Model B? Uh, perhaps you're trying to decide on which clothing item do you want to buy. Is it the red hoodie or is it the blue hoodie? Um, Maybe it's a major decision that you're facing in life about where you want to go to school, perhaps what job you should take. Um, We're faced with decisions all the time, and we tend to look for help with making decisions in different places. So I I needed to buy a new set of tires for my car, and I spent all this time uh, looking around on the internet trying to find other people that maybe had bought these tires, and I wanted to read their reviews. And so, you know, I went out and I just read like thousands of reviews on car tires because it was important to me uh, to make a good decision about car tires. And even as I tell the story, you know, the thing that I failed to do is I failed to seek the Lord. I failed to go to the Lord and say, even with something that doesn't feel biblical or scriptural, like car tires, I didn't go to the Lord and say, Lord, what would be the best way for uh, me to to purchase and to to buy a set of car tires? Uh, I felt like the better resource, and it sounds so foolish as I say this, the better resource was many different people whose articles I read on the internet. But I think we all are faced with that dilemma. We are uh, in the marketplace of voices. There are many voices that are speaking to us as we're either trying to make a decision or trying to discern the pattern that we should take. And we do have a tendency to want to listen Uh, and pay attention to the wrong voice, similar to what I did when I purchased car tires for my my vehicle. In Jesus' day, the people of Israel were faced with some challenges as well. They were interested in following God. They lived in Jerusalem. They were familiar with the temple. They were familiar with the pattern that had been set. But there were voices that were speaking to them about the way that they should live and how they should seek the Lord. 
a newer voice to them was the Romans, basically saying that the emperor is the god that you should be following. There were the Sadducees who had their opinions about what books of the Bible were accurate. There were the Pharisees who had their opinions about how you should live, what your priorities are. And then finally, there was a, a, a relatively apparent newcomer in this prophet, teacher, miracle worker from the region of Galilee. We, we see this, uh, th- this, this group of voices playing out in the capital city of Jerusalem. If we remember where we are in, in Matthew's narrative, we're still in the narrative portion of Matthew. We're going to be getting into a discourse uh, in a couple weeks. But right now, Matthew is taking us through the, the story of Jesus entering the temple courts. And the question that's in the air is was asked by the Pharisees a couple of weeks ago uh, after Jesus cleansed the temple courts. The question was, by what authority are you doing these things? And, and, and that is the question that's sort of lingering over the crowd, over the Pharisees, uh, and over Jesus as we, as we move into this week's passage. If you remember last week, uh, Jesus had, had uh, been responding to this question that the Pharisees asked about authority, and he gave them several parables. Uh, we, we had the parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and then the parable that we finished off with last week was the parable of the wedding feast. And so, as we go through our passage this week, we're going to be picking up that dialogue that Jesus is in with the Pharisees. And the, the main truth that I think we can glean from these two chapters of Matthew is that Jesus is the right voice to listen to. Jesus is the right voice to listen to. And I think I'm going to look at two parts of our passage and help us understand why Jesus's voice is worth listening to. In the rest of 22, we're going to, we're going to see that Jesus's voice is the one, he is the one who is answering the hard questions. Uh, we can go to Jesus with hard questions and get trustworthy trustworthy and real answers. And then we're going to also look at Jesus's conversation with the disciples and with the crowd uh, about the, the Pharisees. And we're going to learn in the second part, this is all of chapter 23, we're going to learn in the second part that Jesus's inside, his heart, matches his outside. And that is a reason that he is a trustworthy voice, a voice that we can listen to. So let's take a look at Matthew 22. We're looking at verse 15. We're going to go through 45, the rest of this chapter. Jesus is interacting still with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's a continuation of last week. And so uh, Jesus has spoken his parables, and now the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to Jesus with their questions. And these might not be genuine questions. These feel like they're traps, and we can see that as, as it begins in 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, this is clearly a trap. Really, either way that Jesus answers this, and they've brought this group called the Herodians along as well. Now, we don't know exactly who this group is, but clearly they are more aligned with the political uh, machine of Rome. 
And if anybody is interested in people paying taxes, it is the Romans. It was the way that they would finance their kingdom, the way that they would build roads, the way that they would build the majesty of the city of Rome. So certainly the people of Rome would not be interested in someone saying, no, you don't need to pay taxes. It's not lawful to pay taxes. Uh, and so, and then the, the other side of this is that they felt that if, if Jesus said uh, that you needed to pay taxes, that it would sway public opinion against him, because certainly the Roman tax process was a great burden to the people. Uh, the the people were subject to uh, a tax for many things, whether it was transportation, whether it was growing crops, whether it was uh, you know traveling goods across the road, whether it was just living in a certain province. The people of Judea were heavily taxed, and so the Pharisees really felt that they had Jesus backed into a corner. Um, one of the things that the Pharisees were frustrated about Roman rule was that the Roman rule had curtailed the Pharisees' power to carry out governance over the people. The Pharisees did have ruling rights in the land of Judea. They were the political leaders. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders. But some of their power had been curtailed by Rome, specifically their uh, ability to carry out capital punishment. Some of the Mosaic law demanded that people be killed. And Rome said, no, 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 no. That, that's us. We don't trust you guys to do that. And so, as, as the Pharisees are thinking about what's the main problem that they're facing as a nation, uh, their answer was, is like, you know, we need the right political leadership. We need the right policies on taxation. Uh, we need the right people in charge. And if we had the right people in charge, that would solve the problems in the Pharisees' minds that existed. Jesus' response is nothing short of brilliant. He asks for a coin. Uh, they give him a Roman coin. And he asks the crowd, whose likeness and whose inscription is on the coin. Obviously, it was Caesar's. It was uh, probably Tiberius Caesar at this time. And Jesus responds, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. The crowd was obviously marveled. Uh, People didn't know what to say, and so they just walked away. Uh, That's how you know Jesus gave a great answer is just silence settles over the crowd. Jesus' truth that he's revealing in his answer is that his followers would have an obligation to the heavenly kingdom that he was establishing, but also the earthly kingdom that they lived under. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus was looking to establish was not an earthly one. Jesus did not come to compete with Rome. Jesus knew that the biggest problem that people had wasn't the tax policies or the public policy of the Roman kingdom. Jesus knew that the biggest problem that people had was that their sin prevented them from being true citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus was coming to deal with the real problem not the perceived problem that the Pharisees had. So the Sadducees realized that, hey, the Pharisees got stuck, and this guy gave a pretty good answer. Let's kind of come at him with our classic resurrection question. And they they come to Jesus, and the, the Sadducees only took or considered the first five books of the Old Testament as being authoritative. And so those are the books that would be written by Moses. It's called the Pentateuch. 
And, and so they did not feel that these books in the Bible covered resurrection at all. That was something that's covered in later books in the Old Testament. And so the Sadducees, you know, no resurrection. There's no resurrection. And so, you know, the, the main problem in the mind of the Sadducees is like, look, if we could just for once and forever sort out this issue of the resurrection and have there be right theological teaching about the resurrection, then, then that would solve the problems that the people have, that the problems with uh, our, our country and with our nation, if we could just have this, this big issue, this critical issue of the resurrection sorted out once and for all, that is what we need. That's the voice that we should listen to. Uh, Jesus responds to this uh, trick question, which is uh, basically it brings up the the, the mosaic the mosaic practice of Leverite marriage, where if if, uh, if, if a, a, a brother is married and has no offspring, then the next brother is in line to be able to uh, bring about children. And so in their contrived situation, maybe it was a real situation, uh, there is a, a, a woman who ends up being married to, uh, what, seven different brothers. And so their point is, is that, look, you know, if the, if, if the resurrection is a real thing, this, this, this incestuous situation is going to be a problem for the resurrected people. So obviously the resurrection can't be real. And Jesus's response almost seems to come out of left field. Uh, Jesus lets them know that they're mistaken, verse 29, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And, and he goes on to say that uh, he points to the book of Exodus, Exodus 3, 6. God is talking to Moses. God says to Moses that I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Now, Moses lived hundreds, if not thousands of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the original patriarchs. And so, by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The implication is, is that that covenantal relationship that God entered into with those three men was still active and present in the time of Moses. Uh, Jesus points out that God is the God of the living. He is the living one, and he is the God of living people. And the truth that Jesus reveals to the Sadducees is that a transformed life does await those who follow God. A transformed life does await those who follow God. Uh, again, moving on to a different group that has a question for Jesus. They, you know, the Pharisees were back in it again here. They have another question, and the Pharisees, as a, as a, as a spiritual party, felt that they could achieve perfection because they could follow God's laws. They felt they could do it perfectly. They had come up with a pattern and a method and a strategy to be able to say that we are going to follow God's law that was presented to Moses perfectly. But the challenge was is that we just can't always figure out what's the priority of some of the laws. We could definitely, if we could just get an answer, if we could just figure out what the right priority is, We'd be able to live perfect lives and be able to meet God's righteous requirement. And so their question that they come to Jesus with is like, hey, and I think it was an honest question. Hey, what? What is the greatest commandment? Because if we knew what the greatest commandment was, we could structure our rule following in such a way that we would be confident 
that we would meet the requirements that God has in the Mosaic Law. We'd, we'd, be, we'd be following it. We'd be doing it right. We just need to know what, what's the priority, Jesus? What's the thing that's most important? And they were probably expecting Jesus to, to call out or to point out maybe something, one of the Ten Commandments, one of the things that had been spoken by Moses. They, they were looking for a specific pattern or a, a way that they could pin their hat on that one and say, that's the one, that's the critical one that we start at, and we'll work down from there. Jesus surprises them because he, he, he calls out that uh, there are two commandments that are upheld by the, all of the scriptures, the law and the prophets, and that's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, uh, in other places that all your strength is in there. And so the, the operative word being all, uh, we are to love God with all of who we are. Whether it's, you know, that, whether it's our heart, what part of us is heart, soul, mind, I don't know, but all of it. All of who we are should be, should be dedicated towards loving God. And if we're getting that first one done, if we're getting that loving God one done right, the second commandment, the bonus commandment that Jesus gives is to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus, the truth that Jesus reveals uh, to these Pharisees is that these two things are what we are to do, and all of the law and all the prophets hangs on this. And again, uh, silence sort of reigns uh, over the audience. And so Jesus takes advantage of this time to ask a question of his own. He, he, the Pharisees are there, the Sadducees are there, but Jesus asks a question of them saying, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Uh, the, the Messiah is uh, a, an idea or a person that was clearly spoken about many times in many ways in the Old Testament. And one of the places that this happened was in a psalm that David wrote, uh, and, and Jesus quotes it here. Uh, when, when they say that, um, when they ask, when Jesus asked the Pharisees, whose son is the Christ, they say to him, the son of David. And then Jesus points to a specific psalm that David wrote, and he says, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he a son? Now, the Pharisees didn't want to talk about this anymore because even they had identified that this psalm spoke of the Messiah. But I think the Pharisees were hoping or they were looking for someone who was, again, that political leader, that son of David, the king, who would be able to come and again, the right political leader would be able to put things right in the land of Jerusalem because that was their biggest problem in their mind. They wanted to see the taxes set right. They wanted to see their power restored to be able to enforce uh, you know, the law of Moses. They, they wanted to see that political leader, someone that they could influence and partner with. Uh, they were expecting someone who was more of a peer, they were not expecting or anticipating the Messiah to be the Son of God, one who is greater than David. Well, the principle for this first section, chapter 22 in Matthew, is that Jesus can answer hard questions. Jesus can answer hard questions. I spent uh, a number of years studying physical therapy, and when I was in physical therapy school, I asked a lot of questions. It's kind of my, my strategy to learn or to understand things. And most of the time, the answer that I got was, well, it depends. 
And then I got a long explanation about, you know, what it depended upon. And it always felt a little bit weak. And, and I get it. Like I was, I was an immature, you know, student of physical therapy. And, you know, my question needed to have more nuance and more flavor. Uh, but it always sort of felt like, you know, whatever question I would ask or other people would ask, it became a bit of a joke. Most of the time, the answer was, it depends. And then long explanation upon, you know, what it depended upon. And it just, again, it didn't feel like, Boom! We know what we're doing. Uh, but, but Jesus is taking questions from a hostile group, right? I, I, I was not hostile towards physical therapy. I was trying to learn physical therapy. Jesus is fielding questions from his, the opposition, the people who are opposed to him, and he's just hitting them out of the park. Uh, we are seeing Jesus' knowledge. We are seeing his wisdom. We are seeing his understanding just, just out of this world, um, and uh, truly amazing to see Jesus be able to answer the, the hard questions from the religious leadership, the political leadership of the day. Um, Jesus was able to speak wisdom into very difficult, very challenging situations. Uh, perhaps you're a little bit like me in that when you have a question, when you have a concern, when you have a dilemma, you're uh, tempted to take your question to the internet or to people that you know or to people that maybe are like-minded, uh, people that you know that will think like you and sort of have your uh, overall belief system at heart. And I think we can be tempted when we have questions that we want to get answers to about, about seeking answers from places where we know we're going to hear what we want. Uh, the Pharisees probably spent a fair bit of time just echo-chambering their questions around because they all agreed with one another. Uh, have you been tempted to take your questions to somebody who will give you an answer that you want to hear? Well, have you, have you ever taken a question to the Lord, to Jesus, either through scripture, through prayer? Have you ever had a, a prayer that you've prayed and you've received an answer? And, and you've heard from the Lord. You've heard from Jesus. He's provided you one of these uh, amazing, knowledge-filled, uh, factual, just on-the-money answers. And what did that feel like to, to experience the wisdom, the love, the attention from, from Jesus uh, in the same way that, this, that these Pharisees and Sadducees did? I think one of the things that I can, when I hear from the Lord, uh, sometimes when I get an answer, I, I just want to say like, great, I have an answer. But what have you done? What have, what have you and I done in the situations when we, when we have received clear answers from the Lord? Have we gone out and done it? Have we done the thing that Jesus has asked us to do? Have we listened? Have we taken his recommendation? Have we, have we laid at the feet of, of the Lord the things that we're worried about? Or even the things that are, that potentially are, 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 are lighter and, 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 and less impactful? Have I, have I laid at the feet of the Lord the car tires that I want to buy? And then listen to the answer that he would provide. Let's go ahead. Let's jump into verse 20, uh, chapter 23. We're going to see a shift in, in, uh, in audience now. Jesus is still speaking, but instead of speaking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, Jesus is now speaking to the crowd and the disciples. The content of Jesus' speaking is going to be about the Pharisees. And so, uh, you can see in 23 verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and it goes on. 
So Jesus is speaking to the crowd. He is speaking to them about the Pharisees, and he points out that the Pharisees do have a position of authority in the current uh, religious situation in uh, Jerusalem. He says that they sit on the seat of Moses. And this is a significant statement. Uh, Moses' role in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel was to help explain and, and represent God to the people of to the people and, and, to, and to offer wisdom and guidance to say, here is how we follow God's law. Uh, and Moses would, would meet with God in the tabernacle. He was, he was given the Ten Commandments. And one of the responsibilities that Moses had was to say, hey, here's how we do it. Here's what it looks like in real life to follow the directions that God gave. And so the Pharisees are in that position. And so as Jesus says that um, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works that they do. The point is, is that they were, there, there, there was a, a, a responsibility that people had to heed the Pharisaical authority because they sat on Moses' seat. But the problem with them, as Jesus points out, is that for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And so there is a problem with the Pharisees. They, they love their position of authority. They love the fact that they sit on Moses' seat. They love the fact that their phylacteries are large. Phylactery is a leather box that you would wear on your forehead, and you would put scripture into it to sort of uh, uh, personify the notion of scripture being on your mind. So that's a phylactery. The fringes of their garments were long. Uh, and so this was, again, these are things that are able to be easily seen by other people. Uh, they love being called rabbi. They do their deeds uh, in front of others. And so Jesus is rebuking them because they have this, they love this position of authority. They love the fact that they're the center of attention. They love the fact that eyes are on them and they're called rabbi. But yet, uh, they are discredited because the things that they preach, they do not practice. Now, I don't know exactly what happened with the Pharisees. They probably didn't wake up one morning as a group and say, hey, I got a great idea. Uh, Let's begin to lead people astray. Let, let's begin to not practice what we preach. Uh, I imagine it was, a, it was a slippery slope, and at some point, uh, they, they, they began to move away from true obedience, true following of the Lord, to the situation that Jesus is describing here in verse 23. And so, uh, Jesus wants the, the audience to know, he wants the, the crowd and the disciples to know that there are some, there's some things to be concerned about. Uh, and he's going to speak seven woes about the Pharisees. And if you think of a woe, you can think of a woning light on the dashboard of your car. We might call those warning lights. But a woe is a warning. It is, it is, a, it is a, 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 and it's used in the Bible. It is a warning. It is an alert. It's letting you know that without corrective action, bad things will happen. That's what happens in our cars. And that's what's going to happen to the Pharisees and to those that follow them. And so the woning light, think of that. Uh, and, and so the Pharisees are present in the audience as well. So it's a warning for them. 
uh, because they would be able to hear it. Jesus' repeated rebuke throughout all seven of the woes, or nearly all seven of them, is that the Pharisees are hypocrites. Someone who feigns to be what they are not is a definition that I found for a hypocrite. The Pharisees, again, they want to seem to be pious. They want to seem to be holy and experts in the law, spiritual leaders of the people, people who can be trusted, people who can be respected. Uh, th- this is what they wanted to present themselves as to the people of Israel. By speaking these seven woes, Jesus wants to reveal what they truly are. He calls them hypocrites. He also refers to them as blind guides. Now, a guide is supposed to be someone who can reliably lead you. They've they've gone this way before. I, I, I had a guide on a, a whitewater rafting trip that I went on, and this guide had been down this section of river thousands of times. He knew, quite literally, every rapid. And if I got into my boat as a raft, as a whitewater raft, and I met my guide, and my guide said, Hi, I'm Mike. I want you to know that I'm your guide, and I'm legally blind. I would be concerned, because how is Mike going to guide me down this river when he can't see? And that's the point that Jesus is making, is that as spiritual leaders, the, the, the Pharisees were blind guides. They had not walked the road that they were asking the people to walk down. And so we're going to go through the woes very quickly. You can read the details. Um, but but I think that what I want to hold up is what the Pharisees uh, were, were not doing and what they were doing. So I'm going to kind of go through that, through the seven woes. So first of all, in 13 through 14, Jesus calls them, he makes them guilty of shutting up the kingdom. So instead of leading people into the kingdom of heaven, The Pharisees are barring entrance into the kingdom. Uh, In verse 15, speaking of proselytes or people who wanted to be converts to Judaism, instead of being a light to the nations and helping people draw near to God, converts to Judaism under the Pharisees were in worse condition than they were before. When we think of uh, making a vow or having an oath, that would be that would be binding in verses sixteen through twenty-two. Uh, instead of helping people make meaningful vows uh, and, and carry them out as a, whether it was a vow to the Lord or a vow to somebody else, the Pharisees were introducing all kinds of complicated nuance and ways that vows could be broken depending upon what they were sworn on. In verses twenty-three through twenty-five. Uh, with talking about tithing spices, uh, the Pharisees were not providing an example of following all of the law. Instead, they were focusing on the parts of the law that seemed easy. It was easy to tithe cumin and other spices, but the weightier parts of the law were being ignored. In verses 25 to 26, uh, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for... Uh, having the inside of the cup be dirty, but the outside of the cup looks clean. Instead of selflessness and focus on other people, uh, the Pharisees were greedy and were self-indulgent. In 27 to 28, uh, the rebuke that Jesus has for the Pharisees is that they are whitewashed tombs. Instead of being honest about the challenges that they experience following God, instead of being honest about their own shortcomings and failures— The Pharisees are trying to present themselves as being outwardly beautiful, 
but filled with all uncleanness. And then in 29 through 36, uh, instead of listening to the people that God sent to rebuke and correct and direct the nation of Israel, the Pharisees have rejected the people that have been sent by God. We see Jesus' lament for Jerusalem in 37 to 39, I think, as he was reflecting upon the Pharisees in the condition that the, that the city and the nation of, of, of Jerusalem and Israel were in, uh, Jesus' heart pours out and he laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, Jesus is going to be in that group. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? And so, uh, there will be consequences for the city of Jerusalem for choosing again and again to reject what God has offered. The principle for this section is that Jesus' heart, Jesus' inside, matches his outside. If you've ever gotten uh, boxed chocolate, Forrest Gump sort of made this famous, you know that there's a little guide that's inside the box that helps you understand what's going to be inside of the chocolatey outside. A lot of times the chocolates look the same. They look identical. It's just it's chocolate. Maybe it's milk chocolate. Maybe it's dark chocolate. But it, it looks the same. And if you don't have the guide, you could end up with one of them crazy orange ones or maybe a crazy other one that you that you just weren't ready for. And, and you never know without the indicator of what's on the inside what you're really going to get in a box of chocolates. Friends, the reality is, is that Jesus is not like a box of chocolates. His heart, his mind, his soul, and his strength completely love God. And furthermore, he completely loves other people. When, when we bite into Jesus, we're never going to be surprised at what we get. It is going to be wholesome. It is going to be lovely. It is going to be wonderful because Jesus does not disappoint those who listen to him. Perhaps you've had voices that you've listened to and you've been hurt or disappointed as, as, you've, as you've trusted them and as you've listened to them. Uh, voices that have lied or have been deceptive or have fallen short of what you were expecting to happen. Perhaps there's been other times when you've listened to Jesus' voice. And what was the result? Did you experience some satisfaction and joy that came from hearing the words of God and taking them into your heart and into your mind? And I think, again, uh, there are other voices that are competing for our hearts and for our minds. What voices are you most tempted to listen to? The question that's been lingering over this entire conversation is, by whose authority are you doing these things? The question that the Pharisees asked Jesus. Matthew has provided us two clear answers to this question up to this point. Matthew 4.17, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And again, in Matthew 17, at the Transfiguration, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. Friends, we have a clear call from the Lord 
to listen to Jesus, to hear his voice, and to begin to obey and experience the abundant life that God has for us. Let's pray that we would hear him. Father, thank you for the reminder in the book of Matthew that uh, Jesus' voice is the one that we should be hearing. Lord, I pray that you would unstop our ears so that we can do so. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so we can see the example that Jesus set of what it looks like to be someone who is wholeheartedly, 100% committed to you. I pray, Lord, that you would make that happen for us. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.